0: Today, on DOOMED! Actually, it's about ethics in journalism. For real this time! Just take that in for a second, everyone. I'm not gaslighting you. This episode is actually about ethics in journalism. Today on the show, we're going to start out by talking the bizarre controversy over journalist David Sirota being hired by the Bernie Sanders campaign. Is there some sort of weird conspiracy going on here? We'll look into it and see on today's show. Before we go into that, though, I would like to remind you all that you can support this show by going to patreon.com slash And uh, if you got a few bucks, you can uh, donate monthly to make sure that this program keeps on keeping on uh, and also that it uh, can grow. But without any further ado, let's get right into today's show. I'm going to bring us up on the YouTube live stream for all the great YouTube live stream watchers. All right. Uh, Joining me now is independent journalist Walker Bragman, who wrote a piece in Paste magazine called The Atlantic Accused David Sirota of Secretly Working for Bernie Sanders. But where's the evidence? Walker, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to have, uh... You won't, well, not always because it's your first time on the show, but I'm sure it will be always a pleasure.
1: Of course, (laughs) in
0: the future. We'll put a pin in that. Right, for sure. I I have faith in you, so that's why I said that. (laughs) So I'll try
1: to live up to that. (laughs)
0: so Walker, thank you so much for joining me I've followed your work on Twitter and I've read a number of your pieces and we'll actually be talking about uh, more than just one on this episode I think if we have time but let's get into the reason why I asked you on the show today because you like my hair because I like your hair <laughs> it, it, it reminded me it reminded me of a of yours a straightened a much straighter <laughs> version of my hair I my hair's a little bit more wavy yours is a little bit I guess what did you? Is it naturally like that, or did you use a, f-
1: a flat iron? This is this is from the salon O pillow. <laughs> there
0: we go. There we go. Uh, and I should, I, you know, people are going to bring it up now in the feed. Last episode, uh, there was uh, we talked about uh, with my guest in the last episode, Mike from the Humanist Report. We discussed uh, Beto O'Rourke jumping in the race, and I had said quite literally jumping, jumping in the race off of a counter, right. Uh, and I had said that, and this is before the donations were, this was on the first day before the, do- the donation amount came out. And I had said that if Beto raised anywhere close to Bernie's amount, I, well, first I had floated the idea of live streaming a colonoscopy or something like that. <laughs> but, but thankfully, thankfully, we settled on I would get a haircut. Uh, and it looks like I will be, getting a haircut because Beto outraised Bernie Sanders. Again, it was half as many uh, donations and we don't know exactly what individual donations means as opposed to individual donors. But 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 I didn't say number of people, I said money amount. So I will keep up to that word and I'm a man soon of be, your word. That's right. I will soon <clears throat> be getting a haircut. Not, not I'm didn't happen yet but it'll be happening anyway let's get to Sorry the re- to sidetrack well no don't worry about it you know it was going to come up i'm sure so uh, let's get right to it so walker why not just start at the very beginning and tell us what caused this whole controversy what what did the bernie sanders campaign do this week
1: for there to even be an issue about who they hired they hired an unethical, underhanded, dastardly investigative journalist uh, who, for years, has held uh, big money and people in power accountable on both sides of the aisle. Uh, David Sirota is somebody I respect very much um, as a as a professional. Um, he's somebody that I know, and so when he announced that he was working for the campaign. Uh, I thought it was good news. <laughs> you know, I mean, for it's good news for Sanders. Uh, our loss in journalism is Sanders' gain. And um, he was announced with a number of other hires, including Brianna Joy Gray uh, from The Intercept, another great hire.
0: Former and, uh, former guest on Doomed. She's been on an episode. Well, lucky you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> gotta throw the plug I'm sure in. I'm lucky.
1: And, and and I'm sure lucky her as well oh, I'm sure um,
0: I'm sure that's the reason why she got hired as uh Bernies <laughs> I mean there there you
1: go I mean who knows where I'm gonna end up <laughs> right um so they so the news broke and it was great and then at four o'clock uh, the Atlantic published an article that uh, Bernie Sanders just hired his Twitter attack dog Yeah. Um, in reference to Sirota's many takedowns of centrist democratic candidates and figures. And, uh, the narrative, it it, it fits so many narratives, right? Like it it fell right into the Bernie Sanders is divisive and his online supporters are unhinged and, and disgusting. And, uh, so it checked a lot of uh, familiar boxes for people. And it also was, I mean, Sanders has built his, his brand on integrity um, and, and, and puts himself forward as an issue based candidate and his followers like him for that very reason. And I think that there's this impulse sort of in, in the, uh, DC, uh, punditry and, and media world to kind of bring everybody down, uh, to the same level and show that we're not all that different. Like maybe in, um, you know, in the, that scene in the dark night where, where, where he's like, you're trying to show that everyone in this city it's just as sick and horrible as you like that. <laughs> that.
0: That was a very good uh impression of uh what's his face as Batman.
1: I spent thirty minutes preparing that for this. No uh,
0: I, I believe uh, I believe before the show started you had told me that you had pulled an all nighter, and I believe that's the reason you pulled the all nighter. Well, now the secret's out. <laughs> it was for the impression. It, it was. It was
1: indeed. <laughs> so so the article comes out and it makes several claims. Um, but the, the most damning one is that Sanders has been working uh, – that, that, sorry, Sirota has been working for Sanders behind the scenes since December uh, of 2018 to kind of clear the field, if you will, for for the Vermont senator and, and uh, allow him to have an easy primary. And there was no evidence in the article – First of all,
0: <laughs> right, let's actually let's, for that let's, claim. let's actually back up just a little bit before we jump into the whole, <clears throat> excuse me, before we jump into the whole aftermath of that article, let's discuss sort of what people were, were, were saying when they found out David Sirota was hired because for a long time, people had assumed that, you know, on, on Twitter, you know, there's clearly people who have a strong uh, dislike for Bernie Sanders. I get it. Some people are a little bit more, I don't know, extreme in that feeling. And and sort of, uh, instead of having actual reasons for not liking Bernie, they just don't like him straight up. And, Gosh,
1: I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Usually they have a little donut emoji in their Twitter <laughs> username. Uh, but anyway, so Sirota, you know, is a progressive journalist. He's never hidden the fact... He's worked for you know the Young Turks, who clear as day are a progressive journalist organization. Uh, it's called advocacy journalism. It's when you make it clear that you have a certain position, and you use facts to argue your position, or you cover stories, and, you know that basically advocate for your positions, whatever they may be. There's right wing advocacy journalism. There's left wing advocacy journalism. There's advocacy journalism across the political spectrum. There's advocacy journalism outside of politics. It's a thing. As long as you're upfront and clear about it, You're that's what it is. It's completely legit. It's journalism. It's called advocacy journalism. The word journalism still in there. And David Sirota has always made it clear who he is, what he supports. He's never been one of these I contacted uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign, and I no, it's he's he's worked for Bernie Sanders twenty years ago. He's always put it up front who he is. Now you can dislike David Sirota for those reasons, okay, that's fine. But to you know put across that he's some sort of uh, journalist hack for ascribing to those positions and letting those positions basically shape the reporting he does it's just not true because he's made it clear who he is. I don't know how else to put it.
1: (laughs) So I think, I think what we're seeing is that there's, there's a solid uh, group, maybe very online, but also I suspect very uh, beltway that doesn't really trust uh, conviction, moral conviction about anything and, and, and approaches politics very cynically and thinks that, you know, this is uh if if Sirota is going after democrats like um Kirsten Gillibrand or Beto O'Rourke or Joe Biden it must be for a political agenda and couldn't possibly be because he genuinely believes the, the uh that those candidates are, are flawed um for ideological reasons and i think we're seeing sort of a clash between an ideological wing of the democratic party and a uh uh I don't want to use the term pragmatic because I don't really think it is pragmatic. Uh, I'm going to call it cynical, a cynical wing uh, of the party. Um, and I also don't think that there is really much of a difference between advocacy journalism today and just journalism. I think that everybody has an agenda. They have uh, their own their own sets of beliefs or biases or preferences that come through in their work. I certainly do. Um, I I think that I think that that's uh it becomes very apparent but when you start from a a conclusion and then try to make facts fit that's when it becomes problematic.
0: Right. Listen, it's it's I I would I would argue that if we sat here today and wanted to name off uh outlets that partake in advocacy journalism it would probably be a lot quicker to name off outlets that don't. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you're a, a liberal or progressive who who likes you know the more you know party centric Democrat, you probably uh, read, and I think these are great outlets. You probably are familiar with Think Progress. You're probably familiar with you know Media Matters. I mean, great outlets. I have had people on this show who work at those places. That's. Advocacy journalism, though, they're working at liberal slash progressive slash leftist organizations that are doing journalistic work. It's it's that simple. Uh, we see it on the right uh, with, I don't know, Breitbart, the Daily Caller. Uh, you know, advocacy journalism doesn't mean that it's positive. Breitbart sucks. Daily Caller sucks. But... They're crystal clear about who they're who they're backing and who they're for and what guides they're reporting. If you're logging on to Breitbart and expecting some sort of I don't know nice article about Hillary Clinton, uh, you can't be shocked when you don't see it. They make it quite clear they're not going to give you that. Um, you know, people thought a problem with you know people brought up the problem with Steve Bannon joining the uh, the Trump campaign as it somehow being the problem of how close Bannon was to, to you know, he was working for a, 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 an outlet that did reporting, you know, if, if you want to call it that. But the issue there wasn't that, you know, Bannon used to work in some sort of, you know, news outlet. The issue there was Bannon was still connected to the outlet and was feeding information to and from the campaign to the outlet and from the outlet to the campaign, and was basically using Breitbart as some sort of propaganda, you know, pushing campaign apparatus. That was the issue there because throughout history, we've seen people go from journalism into politics and from politics into journalism. It's happened. It happened in the Obama campaign, uh, you know, and the Obama presidency
1: too. Jake Carney was a journalist. Uh, right. So it's a- Matt Stoller did a whole list of of, uh, journalists that transitioned into politics. I mean, and, and I think, um, I think that the Washington post did a, did an article on this where it said like, ideally political journalists and and political operatives would be completely separate, but you knock down a couple, you know, walls and there you are, you're in this, you find yourself in in the real world, you're in the same area. I, I think that it's sort of the norm and and maybe a, a little, uh, a little disappointing at times, but overall, I, I, I think that there are ways to maintain your integrity within that system.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it, it's if you ask me, it's harder than ever now because you're asking journalists who are working basically in a, frankly, dying medium uh, <laughs> to not, you know, you take their skills elsewhere. What's Where else is a political journalist going to go? Uh, they can continue writing journalism, which is great if they can find if, if they're one of the lucky few who are able to maintain a career doing that, then perfect. absolutely. Of course there's you know the internet has brought uh, you know, along with the struggles of the industry the internet's also brought outlets where people can go and start their own independent journalist outlets and you know use patreon like I do to try to prop that up. That's great but not everyone can do that and they're political journalists. The journalist is right. one part, politics is the other there's a whole industry of p- p- money to be made in politics and I'd tell you I, I would say actually <clears> as the you know as the journalism industry is is struggling it's probably more you know out you know more areas to make money working in politics than probably ever before that's an industry that's that's basically growing. <laughs>
1: It it is. And it is a little it I mean, I would be lying if I said that I weren't troubled by the the loss of of journalism, or as we understood it. Um, But at the same time, I also know a lot of journalists who don't, uh, who aren't classical reporters in the sense that they wouldn't, uh, the way that they operate within the, the political world isn't how journalists operated in, say, the 1950s and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, I, I just think that it's, it's a difficult industry. It's a dying industry. Uh, I expect more journalists to go into politics as, as time goes on. What's really bad, uh, is when you don't disclose it, which is what, uh, this, this article alleged that Sirota had, had done. Cause in, in I don't know if you remember this, but in 2016, uh, after the WikiLeaks uh, email leaks and the um, or email drop and the um, the Clinton campaign emails came out, uh, it turned out that Clinton's campaign was working with bloggers to kind of coordinate uh, media narratives. Right, and that was never disclosed. Uh, you had people like Sadie Doyle who you know I think Sadie's fine, but I, I mean we have our, our disagreements, but I think right. I think she's fine, but. Uh, it was problematic that she didn't disclose it that this was never disclosed and it came out um and so that was obviously you know not great but it, it should be noted too <laughs> while while that's obviously was
0: a was a scandal when it came out and and the the emails were leaked campaigns have honestly been doing this forever you know they they, have. they, they try they, have. To, they try to promote a narrative and they try to push out that narrative by pitching basically Stories, like, like as if you they were freelance writers pitching to outlets, they pitch story ideas to journalists to try to get them to, to write them. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to receive a tip. And, and also, though, I should say that, you know, some of those emails I saw and some of the writers they pitched, uh, you know, frankly, I think some of those writers w- would have been writing takes on what they were pitching anyway. Yep. Like I saw I saw there was one email where they were trying to promote I don't know, I don't remember off the top of my head, so I'm gonna spitball here with something that's close to it. But it was they were trying to pitch some sort of um I don't know, take on women's right to choose, uh you know, abortion rights, pro choice rights, and I believe they were pitching the, the, the pro Clinton uh uh narrative on that to like Jessica Valenti or something like that. And you know what? Jessica Valenti would have written a piece on that issue regardless. They didn't need to pitch her on it. So when it came out, I was like, oh, if anyone gives Jessica Valenti shit for this, that's just stupid because this is her lane. She's gonna cover it anyway. This is this is one of the issues where it's not an issue to me. So Right. So so there there's there's both sides to it. However, you know, at the same time, the whole Bernie Bro narrative was pushed by we know by the, by people in the Clinton campaign and some writers ran with that from, from the campaign. And you know, when you're, when, to me, that's a little bit more problematic because that's where you're taking this narrative that they want to flesh out. It's not just like, Hey, look, we have this policy we put out. Can you cover it? Uh, this is, Hey, we're taking something that's happening, but exacerbating it. And we want you to cover it in this way.
1: Well, that was such an underhanded, like, Campaign tactic, like to begin with, and and I think that you you, you you raise a good point that 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 was especially problematic because of course if you go on the internet you're bound to find uh, vitriol, hate, uh, spite, trolls, you know from all on all sides. I mean it's certainly not limited to Sanders, but singling him out for that, um, I mean it was an effective campaign tactic, but it really. I I, I always felt that that was that was particularly disgusting, and the fact that they were working with journalists to do that, or or bloggers was was equally troubling. Right, (laughs) right. Like I said, there's there's two sides to each one, right? Right. Whereas even even if Sirota had been you know talking to the campaign and getting fed, uh, like stories, at least it's, at least the stuff that he's done is factual or, 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 you know, verifiable, like this person had this position, well, this person said this, right. as opposed to like this random troll who doesn't really, doesn't really represent anybody but themselves now is, uh, emblematic of this campaign, my opponent's campaign.
0: Right. Well, I guess I, th- I, am going to disagree with you a bit there because I think this part depends. Now, if it's the Sanders, if, if any campaign is pitching a journalist on some sort of narrative idea I would say it's it's you know it's I would say underhanded not to disclose it but at the same time it depends like I said if it's something Jessica Valenti in that example is going to cover regardless and the Clinton campaign is just letting her know that this policy was released then that's legitimate to me you don't need to disclose that if there's some sort of you know like the Bernie Bro narrative you know that's where it becomes you know ethically dubious to me but then I'm going to say there's another tier here. Now, if Sanders' campaign is doing one of those things and saying, hey, uh, Sirota, Bernie put out this policy, cover it, uh, you know, cover it if you want. Here it is. That's legitimate. If, however, Sirota was being paid by the Sanders campaign oh, yeah. during this time, then that's completely a problem. And so Soroto, he wasn't.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> like, we're
0: using, hot, I'd like to make this clear, we're hypothetical. hypothetical here. Um, you know, you have to disclose that, first of all, um, probably would not be able to write it for an outlet like Guardian or the other uh, news outlet he was writing it for. I would You'd say- You need
1: your own outlet. Right. Something that, right. Something that sounds reliable. Something like uh, if you're running in a Democratic primary, something that that really puts in people's minds, uh, Democrats, um, hmm, donkeys? no donkeys. No, no, no blue, blue, something, something about blue and, and you gotta share would want people to share it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, or, or, or you'd want a nation of, of you know, that your end goal is a nation of Democrats, a, a blue nation, if you will.
0: Right. Right.
1: <laughs> Sorry. No, you're absolutely
0: blue. Na- right. Right. Well, yeah, no, 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 absolutely no. But for real, let's, not for real, I don't, I'm just like right now, actually, as I'm trying to think of what to say next, I'm thinking in my head, like the, basically like a a slideshow of all the headlines I was laughing at during 2016. I have a folder. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. From Blue Nation Review, aka Shared Blue. But anyway, let's, let's, let's get back to, I think we had a good discussion about, uh, you know. What would be a problem if you're a journalist if you're working with a campaign in su- in su- in such fashion now let's get what, to hap- what let's get to what happened in this specific case. so you actually spoke to the Sanders campaign, and you know actually maybe we should still move back a little bit so the Atlantic put out this piece who wrote the Atlantic piece again uh Edward Isaac Dover so Dover wrote this piece. And right away, there's a shitstorm online. And the whole, you know, I came out that before before that piece dropped, I came out and basically said, you know, I brought up advocacy journalism. I brought up that, you know, it's clear that, that that's what David Sirota is. It's clear he was someone who's a progressive journalist. And then this article came out and people were tweeting it at me like, oh, see, told you, told you. And then the issue to me becomes this. When did Sirota work for the Sanders campaign. Um, If he was being fed information during the sand, during the time he was uh, writing this uh, working for the Sanders campaign, that's a problem. If he was working for the Sanders campaign and covering 2020
1: stuff, that's a problem. If however, wait, wait, can I stop you right there? Yeah, sure. If a campaign is giving a journal feeding and giving a journalist information, giving, you know, tipping, tipping off journalists, that's kind of how the industry works today. I mean, right? You know, right. right? It's only a problem if if they're saying like we want you to write this angle, and that's something that the like all of this becomes very in practice. I think very muddy. Like if a campaign is communicating with campaigns communicate with journalists all the time. It's, right. And and candidates communicate with journalists all the time. It's just how the industry works, and you build a rolodex of contacts in the hopes that you do get. Right, you know, right, right, right. Uh, these stories. The problem becomes if you sacrifice you, what you would normally write to get more stories. Like, uh, you know, access journalism is is a problem, but it's right. also sort of how everybody operates. Right. So, uh, at so a major scale. So
0: what you're saying is basically, you know, someone within uh, Kamala Harris's campaign, they feed you, uh, "Hey, we came across this in our research about." Beto O'Rourke, you look into it, find out the facts yourself. They basically gave you the tip. It's legitimate to write about it. Yes. However, if you kill a story that you come across about Kamala because of that connection you have with someone in her campaign, then that's a problem. Just to make it clear for everyone, obviously. What I was talking about with Sirota, though, and I'm glad you corrected me if I didn't get this across right, was if he was actually doing any sort of work for Sanders' campaign, the second you have that direct connection where you are even on a trial basis working for the campaign, I think he could still write about politics. Uh, can't write about anything that would have anything to do with Bernie Sanders, though, in terms of uh, you know his running for president, which means you have to stay out of the twenty twenty stuff.
1: If he's if he's on their payroll, I think that would that would be if if, if hypothetically a journalist were working. You know, we're getting paid by a campaign. Getting campaign, they, getting paid at all, freelance, getting trial, paid, yeah, getting whatever. paid yes. at all by a campaign or a candidate or a pack that's affiliated or um, in support of a candidate. That sort of thing becomes very problematic, right? And um, if, and, and if that came out, David
0: Sirota's wrong. Exactly. Doesn't matter how factual what he did was, he would be wrong. But right. your piece proves that. The Atlantic had no evidence to report what
1: they did. So let's get into that. So, okay, so let's, if, if I can bring it back to December, uh, Sirota tweets out, you know, oh, look what I came across on Open Secrets. You know, Beto O'Rourke is taking all this money from uh, the fossil fuel industry. And he gets dogpiled by every <laughs> everyone, everyone in, within the Beltway is, that's a Democrat is just on him, uh, and subsequent investigation into that would reveal that, like, it turned out that he he had broken his no fossil fuel money pledge by taking maximum amount donations from oil and gas executives as well as employees within the industry. So he was sort of vindicated, but the but the narrative kind of stuck that that Sirota is a is is, is a hitman, uh, and and pro Sanders and maybe there's a connection there so we fast forward to um a couple of days ago and the announcement comes out that he is going to be joining the sanders campaign and it's just every for a lot of people it just clicks like oh maybe maybe we were right all along and dover's article kind of fed into that um and not kind of it, it did feed into that uh i think in, intentionally. <laughs> um, so his sources for this were uh, Sanders campaign manager um, faz uh, Shakir and people unnamed and not included in the original draft uh, which, it was which really which
0: is fine it's fine it's fine to have sources that don't want to be named of
1: course of course and I've I've granted anonymity to people you know in in my own work so I would be pretty hypocritical to, to say otherwise My... My point with, with this is that his re- – really in his original draft, his, his original piece that goes up, uh, Shakir is the only one who is cited on the record and uh, the main damning allegation is attributed to his statements. But it's not a direct quote that makes right. the damning allegation. It's Dover. Right, <laughs> exactly. exactly. And it's it's – it's – as a writer, I can tell you it's,
0: it's I think, written quite well if you're trying to get something across without, you know, people who are untrained in this work without them noticing. And I, and I actually, I have a screenshot of this part in the article, uh, the Atlantic article, uh, that claims that Sirota was working for the Bernie Sanders campaign while still uh, covering 2020 and writing about Beto O'Rourke um, I, 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 I grabbed this part of the paragraph because this, this part of the piece, because this paragraph, and I highlighted the line that, that really matters. This is the part that basically caused all this controversy. Let me pull it up on the screen. So let me, for people listening to the podcast version of the show later, let me just read. So Shakir Sanders, campaign manager confirmed in an interview on Tuesday afternoon that Sirota had been in an, advers- uh, an advisory role prior to his hiring on March 11th. Here's the quote. He was advising beforehand, end quote, Shakir said. And remember, that's it. That's the quote. This, the rest of it is written by the Atlantic writer, explaining that Sirota's informal work for Sanders goes back months and was meant to be a trial period to see how the senator would work with a speechwriter. He was advising beforehand this Is the part in quotes, the part that's actually attributed to Sanders' campaign manager. Explaining that Sirota's informal work for Sanders goes back months is not a direct quote to Sanders'
1: campaign manager. Right. And that's that's where you get into trouble. Right. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, that's... I mean, can, can we be frank? It, an obvious hit job is an obvious hit job. This was an obvious hit job. Because even even that quote, even, even saying it went back months, um, at that point, you're not saying that it went back to December. That's That's the author of the piece inferring that and then writing it and an editor approving it. Right. And it going live and going viral and getting picked up by USA Today and the Washington Post, two articles in the Washington Post about it. Right. I mean, this was this was red meat for anybody who wanted to sort of unmask Sanders and show that oh he's just as you know, he's just as bad as every other candidate. He's just as dirty, um, you know, Batman voice <laughs> right, that. Right. And well,
0: I won't I won't go as Listen, I don't know what his, uh, the writer of that piece's purpose, point was in, in, writing, in writing that. Um, I'm going to assume that this is probably what happened. He was told this information and thought he had something and published it because he thought he had something. He, he knew he was going to get attention for it. Um, he probably, uh, maybe even, his, he's claiming he's got sources that, that told him that uh, his information saying that it went back. I can't I, I don't know well, who this his sources is the sources
1: are. This is this is the funny thing, right? Like after so after the piece goes live, the Guardian uh, uh, comes out, John Mulholland of The Guardian comes out and calls it patently false and says, you know, he wasn't writing for us when he was when he was working for um when he was looking for a job with Sanders and and all and, and his response is you like uncritically accepted the Sanders campaign take and Sirota's take. You didn't like look into it. And I've got other people who can corroborate this. But if you read the piece, that claim isn't attributed to anybody else. It is attributed to Sanders campaign manager who subsequently came out and said that he had not only reached out to uh, Dover to, to correct the claim, but that Dover, that he had been brushed off. Right. So, I mean, this. Well, here's the, here's the issue, though.
0: Um, he's claiming that the Sanders campaign can't be, you know, trusted on this or whatever. But who are who were you know? But who are his sources though? Who are those anonymous sources? Again, I'm, I know they're anonymous sources. He's got to protect them because that's how this works. But,
1: but even in his update, but who, he didn't
0: say anonymous sources. Right. But who would who would know? Because he's still claiming that he's got people telling him this goes back to December, on Twitter. Right. Who would be these people, though? Like, you have the Sanders campaign coming out saying that this is not true. This goes back to, the work went back to February. Um, We have the Guardian saying that Sirota informed them that in mid-January, he was in talks with Sanders, and that's when the writing stopped. And, I mean, that's, that's everyone who would know who who is informing i mean again we will never know but if he's going to what what i'm getting at here is if he's going to just say that how would these people know then i I don't know who his sources would be who would know better
1: (laughs) i mean honestly this feels like it feels like uh sort of shifting the the goalposts a little bit like his original claim was that it was working for Sanders behind the scenes. And then he comes and and then that gets um, that gets sort of refuted. And he comes back with, uh, well, he was having conversations with Sanders aides and anonymous sources have told me that, but like, if you have that, if you have anonymous sources say that he was meeting with, with Sanders campaign aides uh, in 2018, why isn't that in your original draft and why isn't that in your update? Why do you just insinuate it in your update? You don't actually attribute anything to anybody else. It adds no context to the story whatsoever. But also, what is meeting with
0: them? I mean, he's a reporter. He's a journalist. He's made it clear he's a progressive journalist. Meeting with Sanders to talk about progressive politics, so maybe he could get something interesting out of Sanders, so he could do reporting. Uh, Is he just talking strategy with Sanders, you know, basically uh, midterm election stuff? Or informing Sanders about, you know, basically running for president and t- trying to find out what Sanders is, you know, where Sanders stood on that. None of that, if it's just, again, shooting the shit is, is, is wrong, especially being that he's made it clear who he is. He's a progressive journalist. The question right. would be is, was Sirota meeting with Sanders in 2018 and getting paid for his work? He was doing whatever work he was doing for Sanders. Then, without disclosing that, we have a real problem here. And I would throw Sirota under the bus in a second. But until you could tell me that Sirota was getting paid in some form by Sanders, meeting with Sanders means nothing.
1: (laughs) So, fun story. Uh, Jeff Weaver said unequivocally that Sanders was doing no work for the campaign at all in in 2018, at all period. So this whole story, Dover's story, has fallen completely apart. Uh, and I think I think that there was a there was a period, perhaps in February, um, between when Sanders was or, or when Sirota was seriously considering uh, a change of career, and when he was still um, under the. Under the the mantle of capital in Maine, that perhaps there could have been better disclosure uh, on his part, but that to me is a far less serious uh, ethical violation than trying to make facts fit where they when when trying to make a, a narrative fit facts that it doesn't that that, that it doesn't fit. Right. Uh, I think, and I, I think it's it's really troubling to see the Atlantic put out a story like this. And allowing such a damning claim to be uh, not attributed to a direct quote, um, but <coughs> but the author's interpretation of a quote. And then to, to, to hear that that there was uh, no effort to, to change that once the once the source of that quote came out and said, you know, this isn't accurate. And, and to not even reach out to the Guardian. I mean, there's so many problems with this article. It, it, the problems are legion. It's it's almost hard to like recall every single one now. <laughs> right.
0: The, the thing is too that you know the writer, the Atlantic writer, uh, uh, Dover, he you know, in using months, it's a very you know vague number to put on on something. What what is months? And technically, uh, he's right in terms of months. By the Guardian's own timeline that Sirota told them in mid-January that he was talking with the Sanders campaign. If you want to say that from most talks, he started the trial period with Sanders, that goes back months. I could say months, and that even goes back February. We're in March. I was working for someone for months. February and March equals months. It's a very are, vague...
1: What was that? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't want to interrupt you. No. Um, but then I ended up interrupting you because uh, you know the the the, the Skype. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, look. So so there should be a distinction made between when you are putting feelers out and maybe pursuing uh, a you know a change in your in in, in employment, and when you are under consideration for a job that's, I mean, seriously under consideration, there's been a job offered and and you are, um, you know what I mean? Like kind of you're, you're in a trial period. There's a, there is a difference. So I don't, I think that the, I mean, it's fine. Whatever the guardian decided, (laughs) you know, that he would no longer write after, after December. Um, but I still, even, even if you, you, talk about it in those terms i don't think that delver's article is 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 accurate in in any sense um and i think that that's well my th- what i'm saying he, is he, he he being
0: that he's not quoting the sanders campaign directly there he left it vague enough he did where where you know if he if he wasn't being so specific with december then months is correct if i Told you right now that Sirota. This is my full sentence. Everything I said about this so far, Sirota has been working in some capacity for the Sanders campaign for months.
1: That one sentence is technically correct. Not according to the camp to Sanders campaign manager. So there was really his it, the work really started. I was told around February twentieth. That's that's that was uh, a, a direct quote from from Sanders campaign manager. Uh, which I was able to uh, verify was that the work really started. There was there was no work before that. There was consideration of a job, and then the the actual like unofficial work was was on the twentieth. So that's after everything. That's after all of the uh, all of his writing, and um, so there really isn't, in my mind at least, there really isn't an overlap.
0: Right, um, but even if we
1: let, let's let's now that we know that though,
0: you know when the Guardian tweeted when the the editor from the Guardian tweeted out that he was informed in mid January. I guess I'm assuming now that we know from what we know from how what you've gotten from the Sanders campaign that the discussion of some sort of employment started
1: in mid January. mm, mm-hmm. Possi- possibility of employment, if there is a campaign at all. I mean, this is right, this, this is the other true, aspect correct. That, that isn't being talked about is that Sanders was really iffy about running for a long time. And I, I talked to um, in the course of my other reporting on on the Yemen War Powers Resolution and the conflict in Yemen. I would periodically talk to uh, Ro Khanna and and my one of my articles from January. Uh, was was a story that uh, about Roe and the effort that that he was doing that he was uh, carrying out in the House to get this through, and that he had been coordinating with Sanders on this on this resolution. And during that during that discussion, during my interview with him, I asked him, uh, sort of just offhandedly, is is he consider is he going to run? And he wasn't sure at that point. And that was on, I think, January 19th. So there's and and that was consistent with what I'd heard from him for a a while. I mean, on multiple occasions. So I think that that's something that should be uh, clear, is that there really wasn't a a campaign. Um, You know, the Sanders staffers that I talked to, everybody said the campaign really took shape. The 2020 campaign took shape in mid-February um and sort of in in february is when everything starts to fall into place that's when the that's when there's the talk of okay so there may there may very well be a job okay there is a job okay are you going to take the job these are all different stages so that's why i say february might be the time where disclosure is needed most
0: right um and you know we'll we'll find out if anything's up because this information all has to be submitted and reported official documentation um, we will get that information if, so if if you know a, a, any campaign lied. So for a campaign to lie about this would probably would possibly be the dumbest possible thing any campaign could could do.
1: Right, and he didn't even accept the offer until the uh, until this month. So I mean, there's I don't know. I it just <laughs> I can't. It's hard to fathom how uh, an outlet like The Atlantic, which does great work that I respect and and shamelessly, I'll admit that I've been I've been pitching to them uh, for a long time. I've never gotten a piece in The Atlantic. They should let me write a piece for them once. Uh, But um, they do work that I respect. But this was just, I think, a disaster. Yeah. (laughs) all things considered, this was just a disaster. I don't see how they get they get through this without issuing some kind of correction or taking the article down or something. Something should happen. Right. There, there should there should be amends made. Right,
0: right. You know, I, I I think it's a it's a tricky issue in terms of you know in general, not in this specific case, in terms of where you know journalism is going. You know, in in this internet age and you know it's it's not an internet it's not going anywhere so to call it the internet age is just like basically saying modern history <laughs> modern times um so you know we're gonna see basically that if you want you know smart people doing reporting there's going to be very few there's very few positions that pay well in journalism um you're gonna see they're gonna have to take other jobs and i think the industry is just going to have to come up with, you know, a way to say that this is okay. I don't, I think disclosures are the way to do it, and everything must be disclosed in terms of any sort of connection, you know, work relationship with any sort of uh, campaign organization, whatever you're working for. You know, if if a writer's covering Facebook or something, and they're working for the Elizabeth Warren campaign, knowing what Elizabeth Warren's advocating for, they need to disclose that they're. You know what they're uh, they're working on. Also, however, it doesn't to me as long as that disclosure is there and you are able to take that in, the reader's able to understand it all in that context. I think that's fine. But again, the question is though, like you know, it's not even a question to me. The person working for Elizabeth Warren's campaign uh, likely didn't have a I like that Facebook's monopoly view to begin with. I mean, people work for these groups because they already have, the uh, or campaigns or whatever, because they already have that sort of uh, ideology. Like, you know, Sorota didn't, you know, go to the Sanders campaign because, you know, the Sanders campaign was telling him to su- support some sort of specific ideology, and that's what influenced Sorota's work. No, quite the opposite. Sorota's a progressive, Sanders is progressive, they line up ideologi- ideologically. Uh, Sanders believes certain things. Sorotas criticized people who go against those things. And it just lines up that way. You know, it's not like
1: anyone was influencing the other. So maybe the solution here is to have government stipends for journalists. I think that would or, be great. Or or subsidize journalism, like real journal, honest to God journalism. I think that that's probably the direction that we're going because you have. Um, well, the problem, there, bili-
0: the problem there is anyone with a, uh, Anyone who's wrapped up in the uh, RT and TeleSUR and all the other, you know, uh, pol- uh, you know, all the other news organizations out there that get funding from governments, they're gonna say that this organization is, uh, you know, is funded by the U.S. government can't be trusted. And I will, I will agree. Like I've said on the show, I've said on the show before. I, I think on certain issues obviously you can't trust certain outlets for example if you want a legitimate criticism on putin you can't go to rt i think that you cannot go to rt for that but rt does great work in other areas such as covering uh protests uh covering their their work on occupy won awards exactly yes but the fact that we know where they get their funding from because it's disclosed, I mean, it's in their freaking name, Russia TV. But anyway, because we know that, we know, okay, let's see what RT's putting out. Okay, they're talking about the Kremlin. Can't trust them on this. Let me go to a different source. Oh, but, and here they're talking about a, a Black Lives Matter protest. Okay, they were on the ground, literally the only, one of the few news organizations to be on the ground covering it. I can trust them on this one. I mean it's I mean you could say you could you could say uh okay they're covering black lives matter because to them it looks badly on the US government to have these protesters protesting fine again we know where they're who they're funded by you could have what they're covering and why in the back of your head but it doesn't make what they're actually
1: capturing on camera and reporting fake Well, so this is this is the thing. We we are inherently more skeptical of journalists and and outlets that are uh, journalists who work for outlets that are funded by states. But we sort of accept that we have a free press, even though a lot of it is owned by billionaires or major corporations with their own set of interests. I mean, when was the last time? Honestly, when was the last time we saw a dead body on MSNBC? When was the last time MSNBC broadcast an image of of like let's say a child that had been blown up by an American bomb overseas? You don't have that. And and the reason that you don't have that is I mean it's 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 twofold I'm gonna, it's, it's I'm, I'm going to
0: advertisers. The last time they've shown that on TV is probably the last time uh, Henry Kissinger was uh, interviewed. <laughs>
1: So so television. OK, so it, it might be a little bit of an unfair question because television has um, always a, been a, sort of fam, a, it's, family friendly. It,
0: it, it was a joke. A bad one. but
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I feel like now I just feel like like a dick. <laughs> um, you know, but television has always been sort of family friendly. But the the point is that you don't have this kind of journalism today uh, because it doesn't it, it certainly doesn't bring in audiences. It doesn't make people want to watch uh, so the advertisers aren't going to be too happy also with access today where everything is built on access, uh, you, it's not going to make you, the, the people in government happy in the, within the administration happy if you're, if you're showing this stuff, cause it's definitely going to produce some kind of visceral reaction from the public. So I don't really, th- I think that the distinction between state funded and, and not state funded, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of a little blurry today and maybe it was less blurry, uh, 40, 50 years ago, but today it's, it's quite blurry. So I'm, I'm less bothered by that. I, I, I do think that subsidizing journalism with with government subsidies is probably the path forward so that we don't have billionaires like, um, uh, uh what's her face? Uh, Steve jobs, widow buying up uh, newspapers everywhere. I don't know if you saw this. I posted a, a video clip where she's at a conference talking about uh, buying the New York Times. Like the interview, the interviewer says, "Would you ever buy the New York Times?" She's like, "I don't know. Is it for sale?" All right. And she's like, "Well, y- you could afford it." She's like, "Yeah, a lot of people could afford it, but is it for sale?" Like, you know, I realized a long time ago that the work that that we do uh, could could be benefited by. Owning our, our own, you know, outlets so that we can control the the narrative. Like, because otherwise, we could do all this good work, and some some journalists could, could could come along and ruin it. It's just like you you just said the quiet part out loud. Like that's what it's all about. It's all about crafting your narrative and and getting it out there. So we need some check on that. Right,
0: right, No, I think it's a good point. Um, you know, so. I guess what we're down to here with this specific conspiracy theory about Sirota and Bernie is that uh, you know Sirota was in talks with the Sanders campaign uh, at some point in uh, earlier this year. Uh, he told The Guardian and stopped writing for them. Uh, he apparently also informed the other outlet he was writing for. It was at Capital and Capital in Maine. Capital in Maine. He also stopped writing for them. Yep. Um, and the Sanders campaign is saying that he worked for Sanders beforehand, meaning before he was officially hired. And they're putting this date now in mid-February. And mid to late February. Mid to late February. And as far as we know now, there was never any overlap. Yes. And I think that sounds... Legitimate to me, based on what we know. I mean, I don't see how else. Like, unless someone comes out with some sort of proof, and again, we'll have proof very shortly when those uh, FEC filings uh, come out. We'll know when they started paying everyone. Uh, exactly. So, so I don't really uh... controversy squashed. Right. I mean, <laughs> now Walker. Before you go, I'm going to have to... I, I, I can't let you off the hook so easily without bringing up this piece. Um. So,
1: I'm guessing it's not the one on Yemen.
0: It's not the one on Yemen, although we'll have you on again to talk about that because I don't think maybe uh, 10, 15 minutes is uh, is enough to talk about that. But back in 2016... I figured I'd plug it. Right. No, everyone go check out Walker's uh, work on Yemen. It's in sure. my pinned
1: tweet, for sure.
0: And uh, Kennedy in the uh, YouTube comments says that you have the most journalisty name ever. By the way, so oh, well, thank you. I think. <laughs> I think. So you wrote for Salon in twenty sixteen, a liberal oh, yeah. a liberal case for Donald Trump. The lesser of two evils is not at all clear in twenty sixteen. Now, so let's now
1: now let let me stop you there because the the tagline was not uh I mean it's taken from it's taken from the article but it, whatever continue we'll we'll assuming, we'll, 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 hash ass- assuming, we'll hash
0: all of this I'm assuming I'm assuming as a freelance writer I, I'm I'm ass- you weren't writing you weren't a staff writer for Salon here right
1: No I wasn't a staff writer okay. and I wasn't I wasn't a journalist at the time I was just you know writing and I and this was the first this was like. I think this might have been my third or fourth piece in Salon. Like I had mm-hmm. been. Uh, so I'm assuming you, like, didn't, you didn't pick that title. Uh, I. So I had written that title, but it had been suggested to me that I pursue, right? That or or and, and 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 honestly, I have to say that 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 article is no is almost no different from the art from arguments that I'd made in the previous pieces which you know it's just it's just a more clickbaity title right. and it's it's still uh to this day people still cite it i do think there is I mean, a interpretation of it but i would like well, to hear Well that's what i'm
0: glad out. no i'm glad cuz that's what i want cuz listen I, I think you do some good work obviously that's why i had you on the show but i don't let, I don't let anyone off easy on this show so i'm going to have to give you some pushback here and uh, I guess to, uh, to, to grab a, uh, a line that people like to use on Twitter, uh, this ain't it, chief. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, so please, so, I'm going to allow you some room here to try to, I don't think you're going to succeed here with me, but I'm going to allow you to, um, to argue this.
1: What, what, right, what so, were
0: you trying to argue in this piece?
1: So it comes down to three things. Uh, one, that, if Trump were elected, he would be ineffectual as, as a president um, and would inspire backlash uh, like we haven't really seen before or or since since Bush. And I, I, I felt at the time that uh, liberals were were somewhat complacent. Um, and that might be understating my, my feelings at the time, because. Uh, I felt like I was watching an election where Clinton was staking out these positions that were kind of to the right of Obama, in, in some respects, or saying things that were to the right of Obama. And like, we had an opportunity as, as Democrats at the time, I very strongly identified with the party, I wasn't doing journalism, uh, I was just, as I said, writing. Um, I kind of fell into journalism in that election cycle. Uh, so I felt that that if Trump were elected, he would he would be ineffectual. He would inspire backlash, and ultimately he would lose in 2020, which is a census year. Whereas Clinton would get crushed in the midterms and in 2020. I mean, the last time we had two presidents from the same party win back-to-back two terms, do do you know who they were? The two presidents? I off the top of my head, I do not. So there's there's a reason, and that's because it didn't happen in modern history. It was James Madison and James Monroe. So I looked at 2020. Um, I looked at 2010 when the Republicans swept and they killed at the state <clears> level and they redistricted Congress and they basically they held Congress for eight years. I mean, it, it took an extraordinary it took Trump in the White House to dislodge the Republican majority in the House. And I thought at the time that if we're going to get anything done. Uh, if we're going to address the problems that this country faces, we really need a house that is um, either democratic to that is democratic to progressive. So I figured the best way to do that would be to win 2020. And if Clinton were top of the ticket, I didn't see that happening. So that was the argument. I definitely downplayed Um, unintentionally uh, downplayed some of the very real concerns that people had about Donald Trump. And I respect that. And I understand why people got very upset. Um, But I would also clarify that I was not encouraging people to vote for Donald Trump, more taking the position that if you vote your conscience, it's fine. Um, I myself voted for Jill Stein, and I endorsed her actually on CNN. (laughs) Uh, so no, (laughs) yes. So this, 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 uh, you know, this is where I was, I was at in, in 2016, 2020. I think I I'm on a sort of a different page. I think that the Democrat, whoever that is, uh, is going to be running on likely the most progressive platform that any candidate has ever run on any mainstream candidate has ever run on in history. And I think that that's an important thing also with the census. You know, it, it's kind of do or die, and especially with climate change knocking at the door, it's it's do or die.
0: So you would you would vote for a Democratic nominee, Beto O'Rourke, or a Democratic nominee, uh, Kamala Harris?
1: I'm not going to comment on who I would vote for, <laughs> uh, but but that's fine. As, that's fine. It just per, it just personally, that was a big lesson for me in 2016, is because I I didn't want to be. Um, I found that I was very much defined by, by my choice of, of candidate in 2016 and then the position that I had taken in 2016. And as I and that was fine for for commenting and, and sort of being a, like a talking head kind of person, but as I, I've gotten more into journalism and, and started doing more stories that I think are are important, more certainly more important than just kind of shooting the shit about politics. Um, it's more important for for that work to be viewed on its merits rather than associate it with a with a candidate or a campaign or even a political affiliation. Like, like yes, I am I am I will say I am a progressive. I think it is important to, to beat Donald Trump in in 2020, but that's right. as far as I'll go. Oh, that's
0: cool. So, but let's get back to this piece because um, I need to ask you because uh, you know you you mentioned that you, you clearly from your your work and everything obviously. Uh, you you you're not the same person you were uh, th- almost three years ago now. Um, do you stand by that you think that uh, a Donald Trump presidency was better for liberals, progressives, whatever, than a Hillary Clinton presidency would have been?
1: So this is not going to satisfy anybody, but in, in some ways, I think. Um, no, I think to a lot of people in this country that are, that are actively suffering under Donald Trump, it, it's sort of a meaningless, uh, look, looking that far ahead is sort of meaningless and, uh, in some ways kind of monstrous. But at the same time, I think, uh, that a lot of the things that I said that I suggested in that article have been, have sort of played out. I mean, Trump Trump's major legislative accomplishment is tax reform he has not really done anything else legislatively that that will that he can tout as an accomplishment he has failed on health care he can't work with an, with his own party um, so I think there there's some of that there has been a historic grassroots uprising against him we've seen the Democratic party move move to the left uh, I know that a lot of people feel that it's not happening fast enough but we, I, I will stress that what we're seeing now is nothing less than an uprising. It's happening in media. It's happening within the party. The culture is shifting in in large part um, because Trump is is elected. So I I don't know if I'm the one really to say whether it's better I think or or worse because I I feel like that might be an individual that I think that is an individual. Um, answer a lot of people are struggling now more than more than they would be perhaps under clinton or at least feeling more anxious than than they would under clinton and and i have i have great sympathy for that i feel you know right I, i think that my piece did not adequately address their concerns or and i think that i at the time did not adequately appreciate their their concerns um and so for that, I, I completely understand the, the anger. But at the same time, I am hopeful for the future, and I think that I think that there is great there is a lot of reason for for people on the left and and Dem- even Democrats and people who who don't think we're heading in the right direction now to be hopeful for the future.
0: Right. Right. No, I think I'm. I'm... Uh, you said what I guess I was going to say to you if you had the opposite, if you had the opposite answer. Uh, you know, uh, I think that's a great point that you made, uh, in terms of, you know, like you said, your article, I, I would, I would argue that your article, uh, was correct about the point that Donald Trump was not able would not be able to get anything done legislatively. We've seen that. Um, but I think, you know, that's probably the one point you, you, you had that that ended up coming true. Um, you know the the whole conversation really hasn't been changed. He still is the same person, as pretty much all the other Republican presidents when it comes to basically, I guess, if we want to use his terminology, the swamp. Um, so, so
1: so let me let me clarify that the con- the national conversation. I, I I don't think Trump has changed anything about the Republican Party or who he is. But I think that the dialogue now. I mean reparations reparations is an issue in a democratic primary right in 2019 like like the and and there has been a massive massive like outcry uh among democrats we now have popular support for medicare for all democrats who weren't in favor of it in 2016 are now like well maybe that is the path forward so i think these are positive things
0: I don't I don't think those things came though as as a result of Trump. I get listen, I do agree that you know, if we're going to take something good out of a Trump presidency, one of the things we got out of this was that he's lit a fire under people who maybe weren't politically active before and they're very interested in politics, many of them liberal and progressive. But I think, you know, when it comes to a lot of the things you mentioned, um we, you know, we we we're we're on that way. Um, you know, if you want to say Trump sped that up, I think that could be a legitimate argument. But the reparations conversation has been ongoing. And really, I would say the the spark for that was lit in 2016 with uh, Ta-Nehisi Koz's piece. Yep. And, you know, I, I think, you know, that was prior to President Trump. And I think it would have continued in that fashion.
1: It um, was, but Democrats were timid. Democrats right. were, and, and to an extent they still are, but there, I think there's more of a willingness to embrace outspoken leftism or, or, or progressivism t- today than there was in 2016. And part of that is because they realized that the, pra- what they thought was pragmatic really wasn't quite so pragmatic. And it lost, You lost to a dime store clown in, All right. in a, in a pretty I mean, humiliating I mean, way. So you have to adapt.
0: I forget the headline or where it was, but it was something like, the Clinton era of neoliberalism is dead. What a waste! It was something like that, yeah. <laughs> and I think that was that was so prescient. I think that to me is is really what we saw out of this um you know, and I think you know, going back to your piece, to me, the worst thing about a Trump presidency, and I think it's the thing that automatically would i mean there's a number of things obviously that all that you brought up though I think um that you know kills that whole trump would be better. Conversation. I mean, unless you're an anarchist and just wanted to see. There was that, there was a piece that of like that I saw where it was from an anarchist saying like, I support Trump because he's going to bring all that destruction to everything. <laughs>
1: that I... A lot of people, a lot of people felt that way. Right. I think a lot of people were very angry and felt right. left behind. Um, you also had uh, but a it, lot it, of alienation.
0: But like you said for yourself too, it, it totally ignored the groups that were going to be most hurt, hurt by, by Trump, honestly. And... And I think you know Trump. Trump pulled through when it came out when it came down to it in terms of uh, he hurt the people he said he was going to hurt, and uh, he kept his word on that that point. But for me, he I, has. For me, the thing that is the was the number one argument and uh, against the whole you know why Hillary Clinton was the 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 better of the two evils was simply when it comes down to it, the courts. And what Trump has done to the court, uh not just the supreme court uh is something that no matter what whether it be you know pushing forward uh progressivism you know an awakening in people uh whether it's um i don't know whether it's any of the things that you could possibly argue, I think none of it at all lives up to the fact that we'll be dealing with his
1: judges for a generation. Well, okay. So, so the court, I think the court uh, panic, the panic over what Trump is doing to the courts is somewhat overblown. And, and believe me, if tomorrow the Supreme court overturns Roe versus Wade, I, I'm sure that there will be people demanding my head on a pike. Uh, but Hear me out. Let's say this,
0: though. The good thing for you, if that happened, would be people wouldn't refer to a liberal case for Donald Trump as the first thing they want to own
1: you. with. Right. It would it would be this right now. So so when I say that people are too freaked out about the courts, I mean that there the ability there has always been an ability to add justices or subtract justices to the court. There is nothing in the Constitution that delimits a number of Supreme Court justices. And I know that this this takes political will, and it takes it, it costs political capital. But besides the fact that 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 people die um, unpredictably. Uh, there is the there is a safeguard with, with the court. So I'm I'm less freaked out about the court. It's also a reactive branch of government, whereas Congress um, is is an active branch in order to get any legislation through at all. You you need Congress. So I, I I I weighed in 2016. I weighed Congress more heavily than than I weighed the courts. Having gone through uh, law school in that time, <laughs> Um, I probably, I, I probably still weigh Congress more heavily than, than the courts. Um, and, 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 I think there, there, look, there's a legitimate disagreement to be had there. There are good points on both sides. Like, uh, I think I brought up a pretty, a pretty hefty one if, if, if the court overturned Roe versus Wade. So that's, that is a very real argument, um, that people can make and I understand it. Uh, but. Congress could prevent any action on on climate change, a Republican Congress for the next 10 years, could prevent any action on climate change, and ensure that 30 years down the road there, we haven't done anything and, and, and we're, we're in significant, significant trouble, which, by the way, will not just affect. Um, it will affect everybody, but it will affect most the people who were vulnerable in 2016, those same people will likely still be more vulnerable than people like me. In you know what I'm I'm getting at? I see what you're saying. No, I see what you're saying. Like uh, I
0: think that, I think you could make an argument for for both. I I think the the court argument is stronger because it's more it's really more direct. What you're worried about is like a a a, a domino effect. Whereas the court uh, issue I'm bringing up is literally like a direct effect.
1: Well, not necessarily even a domino. I mean, climate change is just one issue. We have we have kids in their twenties dying from rationing insulin. If we don't address that uh, in the next few years, we're I mean. People will die. People will continue to die. People die all the time because they can't afford medical costs. People die of preventable illnesses every single day. It is something that we don't talk about. It's something that we should talk about. Um, we wouldn't be able to check a, a president on war powers. A Republican Congress has already shown that it consistently that it will not check a president on war powers. That is that that are those are very tangible, very real bodies piling up overseas
0: well another, another another domino effect i was sort of referring to is you know uh you when you were making the case that you know uh, uh why the liberal case for for a donald trump presidency now because it'll be better in the future for progressive and liberals you know the assumption is you know i i know you have uh your historical context for that assumption but again, it's it's a domino effect. You, you the assumption is that Trump gets in, or Hillary gets in, and this happens at the next midterms, and this happens with Congress. It, it's not as direct as if Trump gets elected, he will appoint the judges. Hands down, no need to to speculate on how the political climate will be in the midterms. No need to wonder if uh, Hillary or Trump will. Be the third president to not have that consecutive um, party uh, full party control of of government. That that's sort of what I'm referring to as well when it comes to sort okay. Of, it's a more direct. Like I could I could have told you in 2016 that Donald Trump will appoint terrible people to the courts. These are lifetime appointments. Uh, you couldn't tell me in 2016 with certainty that 2018 midterms would be a slam dunk for Democrats.
1: It's true, but I did suggest that the 2018 midterms would be a, a pretty slam dunk for Democrats. Right. So, but you couldn't, a- but you're, I see. I understand. I I don't want to uh, like for example. Wanna, for example, I don't want to misrepresent your argument or or strawman it. So I I do understand what you're saying. That that for there exa- was you can't know what right. was what was going L- to happen.
0: Let's let's put it this way: Bernie Sanders wins 2020. Are we going to argue that? Eh, if we want to keep a, a, a Democratic Congress, we got to elect the Republican in 2024.
1: Well, no. So. <laughs> So the what made 2020 so special is that it was a census year. Um, so when the, the census happens um, over the next year, the congressional districts, every time there's a census, um, it precedes a redistricting of the state legislatures and the House.
0: Right. But and this, th- happens, those, this happens regardless,
1: though. But it doesn't happen. It only happens once every 10 years. And, and the Republicans last time recognized that there was a census around the corner in 2010, and they poured money into the state races um, in what was known as Red Map. And they really—and Obama—Carl Rove put out an, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal explaining this plan, and the Democrats didn't really react, and they got crushed. And the Republicans— gerrymandered the state legislatures, and they gerrymandered the House. And we've been living with that ever since. Um, I mean, even now, I mean, the Democrats, they took the House in in 2018, which was astounding. I I was like, I was floored when that happened. But they underperformed um, at the state level. There there wasn't enough money or whatever, whatever, for whatever reason, they didn't do as well at the state level as they did at the national level. And that was, uh, I think, a large part a testament to the to the Republican redistricting. And those state legislatures, by the way, pass laws that affect people very directly. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, But but I guess what I'm also saying here is that the gerrymandering would have happened regardless, too. I mean, this is this is the Republican Party we're talking about. I mean, I know what you're saying about the the plan was was put out there and and, and it was for everyone to see. But I mean, census year or not, they were going to do
1: what they do. Sure, in the states that they control. But that's and that's the thing: the state legislatures will draw the districts. Well, they'll draw their own districts. They'll draw the House districts. So if you have a Republican majority, in, of, of, if the Republican Party controls a majority of state legislatures, you can pretty much bet that the Republican Party will control a majority of of uh, House seats and, and and state legislatures going, going forward. Um, and that means disenfranchising a lot of people, uh, which is something that I don't think we should overlook. But – but I do think that, that what we're getting at is that there are legitimate points on, on both sides of this. I think that when people see the title, they assume that that article is saying, you know, Hillary is, is equally bad to Trump. And that's not really the, the point of the article, that, that I think overall, a Hillary presidency would have been far better than a Trump presidency in the immediate. Right.
0: No, I just you know I had to bring up. I, I could not have someone who wrote that article, regardless of what else, come on the show and not bring it up. I just you just had to you had to deal with it for a bit. I'm sorry, buddy. <laughs> I, I don't I don't take offense. I I do not take offense. But I'm glad to hear that you are where you are now. Personally, I don't think you should defend it even as much as you you do. Even though you you have the the you know the right. Outlook now that you put in there. If I was you, I'd just say, "I know better that that was that wasn't the right that wasn't the right take."
1: <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, we'll see. No, I, you know, I, I, I understand that, and there are people who react pretty viscerally to it. No, I think um, you know. Listen,
0: I think you do. From what I've seen, you do good work. So, you know, I. That's why I had you on the show, man. And thank you for uh, debating me on that. And, you know, if someone sent me this, actually. It would be dumb for me not to bring this up. Um to point out that David Sirota's uh, Beto O'Rourke piece that looked into his voting record and his... And then David Sirota also did those tweets where he looked into where Beto's contributions came from. That all led to a report by Alex Koch in Sludge that found out that O'Rourke broke a no fossil fuel money pledge that he signed, which caused that group to basically rescind having O'Rourke on their list of people who pledged not to take fossil fuel money. So, you know, it's clear that everything that was going on there was based, in fact, on legitimate information, factual information... And it led to something
1: real. Right. I I don't buy this narrative that, that, that he was, uh, that, that Sirota is an attack dog who goes off half cocked and doesn't, and, and misrepresents things. He has, (coughs) from what I've seen of his work and I have seen a lot of, of his work, he is extremely thorough. He, uh, he was a fantastic journalist. I'm sure he'll make a fantastic speech writer. Um, it's just kind of a shame that the, that <laughs> the um, I think that the reaction was sort of what it was. Right, right. So there is a certain amount of disappointment that it's okay though, right. because we do lose a, a journalist, and every time we lose yeah. a journalist, it's
0: well, our loss is Bernie Sanders' gain, I guess. Michael Michael Brooks from the Michael Brooks Show and the Majority Port just jumped in the YouTube chat and. He I think we should end it with this. Michael Brooks says, uh, "Great work on Yemen to you, Walker." So, there you go. So I'm going to I guess if if you get the Michael Brooks approval on the, your Yemen work, I'm going to have to have you on the show to talk strictly the Yemen stuff.
1: Well, let's let's do it. It doesn't get talked about enough and uh I just I'll give Michael a, a plug. I like his I like his show. I've seen uh, a, a, a lot of it, and I. Uh, right, yeah, we
0: don't have to. So, we don't. We don't have to. Sorry, We don't have to do that here. That's not necessary. All fair, right, fair everybody, enough. let's get this guy Good. off the channel, off the show, ladies and gentlemen. Walker Bragman, he's an independent journalist. Uh, he does uh, great work on Yemen, according to Michael Brooks. I agree with that assessment. Uh, don't agree with the assessment on Michael Brooks, but. <laughs> Walker, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, today. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, take care, man.
1: Hey, you as well.
0: All right, everybody. I'm gonna. I love the Skype sound. Bloop bloop. All right, Michael. You know I love you in the uh, YouTube chat over there. Uh, Michael says Matt got cut. <laughs> oof, oof. Yeah, that was rough. Ooh. Ooh. Promoting Michael Brooks' show on this show. It's it's an easy way to make sure you never get invited again. Oh, Sorry, Walker. Oh, man. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Michael says Walker fucking cut you. Ha, 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 All right, all right. Oof. Ugh. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, to support this show, you, you could go to patreon.com slash Matt Bender. Uh, I asked for a measly $5.00 uh if $5 is not measly to you then please do not become a, a subscriber i do not want anyone who doesn't have the monetary financial uh, slash financial means to 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 do that don't put any burden on yourself but for those of you who do for those of you who look at $5 as a measly $5 for those of you who find $5 on the floor outside maybe you know walking down the street outside your local 711 you find Five bucks on the floor, you pick it up, scoff at it, crumple it up, and throw it back down on the sidewalk. Uh, You should probably uh, become a patron. Uh, You will support this show. You will help the show grow. Um, It would be fantastic if you can do that. Uh, You could also support this show by going to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave an iTunes review. Subscribe to the iTunes feed. Uh, Leave a written iTunes review, even. Uh, It would be a big help to the show. If you haven't done so yet and you're listening, I mean, what is the excuse? Come on. It's free to do that. Go to iTunes, press the star button. Go to iTunes, write a sentence if that's all you want to write of a review. Please, come on. Don't be so lazy. Also, you can support this show by going to our YouTube channel. You can go. There's two easy ways you can go. Doomed.tv will take you right to the YouTube channel. And also, YouTube.com slash Matt Binder will take you right to the YouTube channel. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy? I don't know. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, Michael. Has, did YouTube, you're in the chat right now, did YouTube ever monetize you? Because I got my answer from YouTube. And even though I hit all the monetization guidelines, they turned me down for monetization. And I need to wait 30 days to monetize, to apply again. And their reasoning for turning me down for monetization is duplicative content. And... I certainly do not post duplicative, duplicative content. And I know you are having a similar issue with YouTube monetization. So it is very, I, I find this very, very frustrating. <sighs> well, ladies and gentlemen, going to go to the second half of the show, an abridged second half of the show. Yeah, you can't super chat me because until I get that monetization uh, approval. That's the part that sucks. You got my... What, and what try did you get monetized, Michael? I mean, the obvious answer is that until I get monetized, you must become a Patreon subscriber because that's the only way you can support this show, monetarily. Oh, and before I go to that better second half, on the fourth try, Michael said, jeez, All right, well, this month's patrons. And then we'll go straight to the the other half of the show. Abigail T., Adam Q., Alan B., Andrew H., uh, Ayasaka Communist, Benji A., Bobby M., Brooke H., Chi, Christine H., Clement C., Colin R., Cecily C., Danky Uger, Dave K., David Z, Dragon Slayer, Dum Dum Dum, Emily M, Fraz K, Francis Zek, FTW All Day, Greg D, Ian Curtis J, Jameson Test, Janelle A, Jasmine H, Jeff K, Jordan V, Joseph R, Josh C, Katie S, Marcos R, Max W, User Me, Michael J, Michael M, Misfit Demit, Mr. Danks, Nicole A, Nam Net, Omid M, Romina O, Sina, Struggle Session, T.M, Tammy G, Thaddeus A, Tina M, Tom G, Tom M, Trine E, Will P, and Zarin. Folks... Who are not patron subscribers or YouTube live watchers. See you all next time on Doomed.